0: if you build it, they will come, is starting to ring hollow, not just in racing, but the stick and ball sports also, especially when it comes to the youngest viewers, which determine the future of sports. The stick and ball sports are losing the youngest viewers to other pastimes. So what does that mean for racing? A roundtable panel with guests from very different perspectives will discuss the struggle racing faces in reaching so-called Gen Zers on this edition of In the
1: Gate. to move in. They roll that. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight. It's a hit Big finish.
0: This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. Get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app, and please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us, and by others we mean anyone other than the professors at America's Best Racing, who left us off their syllabuses in the Best Podcast category of this year's and last year's Fan Choice Awards. But that's okay. Tom Brady was drafted number 199 overall, Jacob deGrom of the Mets number 271 overall. They were passed over a combined 468 times. Hey, America's Best Racing, how'd things work out for those two guys? Recently, the Washington Post published an article about how young adults, 20-somethings called Generation Z, are creating a real shift in how viewers connect with sports and how many connect with sports. If you think of the traditional ways of consuming sports, you root for a team, you watch and attend their games, you might be completely disconnecting from Generation Z. As an example, the post cites ESPN's internal data that says that the percentage of 12 to 17 year old stick and ball fans who call themselves avid fans has dropped from 42% 10 years ago to 34% today. What if I was to tell you that young people care more about what an athlete binge watches on Netflix than what he or she thinks about the next opponent? or that viewers might not care about the athlete's next opponent at all, only that the athlete is a culturally significant figure. If that sounds ridiculous to you, then you might not understand this new generation of consumers. But if you're a decision-maker stewarding the future of this sport, you'd better learn to understand these Gen Zers and give them what they want, or you won't have a sport left to oversee. Now, the Washington Post article talked about Gen Z as relates to stick and ball sports. But what we're going to do is spend this time talking about how horse racing relates to Generation Z and what leaders in this sport can slash should do in order to reach them. To do that, we have invited guests from a number of different viewpoints. First, we have a racing executive looking to market his product. He is Gregory DeVincent, who is the vice president of marketing at Gulfstream Park. Next, we have two young people with us. One became so hooked on this sport that he's now going through the racetrack industry program at the University of Arizona. He is Michael Sanduli, and full disclosure, his father, Matt, has been a longtime ESPN event producer. Our third guest is Madison Bregman, the founder and CEO of Girls, spelled with a Z at the end. She consults with clients trying to reach young people, young girls in particular. According to her LinkedIn page, she's worked with a number of clients, including the NFL. And she's the perfect person for this discussion because she can self-reflect, if you will, on trends involving Generation Z. So, welcome to all three of you. Let's start with Maddie. When it comes to sports in general, how would you describe the differences between what appeals to Gen Zers versus older generations? What do Gen Zers care about?
2: Yeah, so I think the big thing is that whereas older generations would sit down and watch an entire football, baseball, basketball game, this generation is so much more driven by just watching clips or highlights. The way that we're consuming it with that sort of being said is different, too, because we're not watching it on TV. We're watching it on mobile devices, on different platforms like Twitch and and Snapchat and Instagram. And really the way that we're interacting with teams and, and players is different as well, where older generations, once again, were fans of specific teams because you grew up in that city or whatever, have some kind of connection to it. And this generation is more a fan of individual players. And so, for example, if I'm a huge fan of Baker Mayfield, I may not necessarily love the Cleveland Browns, but I like Baker and would wear his jersey or would get one or whoever it may be.
0: Michael Sanduli, you've heard what she just said about your generation. This is your generation. How does that jibe with your thinking as you were being attracted to horse racing?
3: Well, horse racing is the number one sport in my heart, but but I'm a fan of all sports. So I completely agree with Maddie in the sense that our generation likes players rather than teams. A lot of my friends like LeBron or Curry and so on. In horse racing, you can kind of do that. You pick your hero for the year, for lack of a better term, because unfortunately nowadays everybody gets sent home early. And this year – the LeBron of this year, you could arguably make the case for, was Tiz the Law. And Tis the Law garnered a lot of fan interest because he came from a grassroots sale. I think it was the Saratoga Select that Nolan and Sakatoga bought him out of. And he grew into this big, big storyline. And that's what everybody likes. Everybody likes a big story. That's what attracts fans.
0: Gregory DeVincent of Gulfstream Park. I'll inject just a little bit of opinion here to say that I admire, as you told me off-air, that Gulfstream does not market to 12- to 17-year-olds due to the gambling element of racing. But yet, when those kids watch TV or go online, they're seeing and hearing ads for prominent fantasy sports outlets, which in many ways equates to gambling. What do you make of that?
1: Yeah, the, the the gaming end is, is interesting. I mean, we have a social responsibility to try and not turn kids on to gambling, of course. But we do want to we do want to introduce them to the sport. And we we do several initiatives throughout the year to try and get younger fans out here. We do a, throughout our championship meet, which is happening right now. We do a breakfast at Gulfstream where, of course, right now in the pandemic, not happening. but. On normal years, we encourage families to come out, take tours of the stables and the barn areas, and and really get younger folks interested in the sport from the ground up. So it really turns the experience into more of a family friendly. Get out here in the morning when the horses are training, maybe meet some of the jockeys, and and take a tour of of the the barns and 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 kind of see things from uh, the backside. Uh, as opposed to the watch and wager element that we uh, promote for um, our fans that are, say, 25 and up.
0: So, Maddie, how does that jibe to you when you're talking about the wanting of experiential connection with a sport? What does something like that do for you?
2: Yeah, I think the experience around it is super important for any sporting event. Because even if you're not necessarily a baseball fan, you may have heard that going to a baseball game is an entirely different story, which it is. And so I think that the experience of going to a horse racing event is, is important for sure. And then what we're looking for is a variety of things. So food is a fun one, like Instagrammable, how Instagrammable is your event or can we post something on social media? Is this gonna make me look more relevant and cool to my followers or friends, are a few things.
1: And Maddie, it's it's interesting you say that too, because that's really been an angle that, here at Gulfstream Park, we've tried to approach things from a a little bit different angle. When our facility was reinvented back in in, uh, the early 2000s, we really built these massive restaurant, or ballroom type venues that overlook the racetrack. And through that, we've been able to bring in chef-inspired food events or food festivals or more of a bar kind of fun atmosphere for fans to come in and watch the races, but really experience a lot more than watch the race. And and that that's kind of that element of fun that really layers on top of the the horse racing is something that we've really focused on, especially in these past few years. And then promoting that through all of the social channels to try and attract the younger audience.
2: That's a great way to think about it.
3: The whole marketing aspect around the championship meet, I think is, it has been extremely marketable just like how NBC has right before they run the Derby, they have their celebrities pick. Goldstream park got post Malone for the Pegasus one year. You guys are playing to the younger audience because I mean, I'm not going to speak for myself. I don't know a whole lot of 25 year old, 25 and up that listen to Post Malone, but I do know that a lot of kids my age, say from maybe 15 to maybe 23, listen to Post Malone. So that lures us in. Oh, Post Malone likes this, so maybe we like it too. It's kind of like leading a horse to water.
1: Yeah, and then you're actually referring to the Pegasus World Cup, and we always try to find entertainers or experiences that that'll appeal to. Uh, while they they may appeal to 15 to 18 year olds, yeah. You know, this past year we had uh, Nelly and T Pain and. Snoop Dogg the year before that. So while they may, they may appeal to uh, younger audiences as well, we're, we're, we're always trying to find the next uh, fan of the sport and the next way that we can bring in kind of a different audience. Because we, we do understand that you know, our, our typical 60-year-old horse race aficionado uh, won't be around forever. So we are, are definitely looking for ways to bring in new audiences.
0: Maddie Bregman, in the Washington Post article that we referenced, Mark Beal, who's an assistant professor at Rutgers, who has written two books about Gen Z, said that Gen Zers get their news from Instagram and YouTube, as you mentioned as well. First of all, explain to our audience, which is probably not familiar with how that works, how you would get your news from social media like these.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, on Instagram, you can follow different news sources, but we get our news from friends a lot of the time, too. But yeah, and I mean, instead of watching Fox News on TV or or CNN or whatever it may be, we're following them on social media and getting news that way. And then YouTube is an entirely different audience where we're looking for news not on necessarily the world and politics, but on our favorite influencers or maybe if an athlete has a channel, then we're getting news on them that way. But I think a lot of it is through friends and a lot of it is through social media.
0: The article quotes that Rutgers professor further by saying that for Gen Zers, sports consistently ranks behind entertainment and pop culture in the popularity department. So, Maddie, how at all is that a shift from previous generations of young people?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that... Older generations grew up looking up to athletes and more traditional celebrities. And for us, we've grown up in this age of social media where a lot of us haven't known a world without it, where we haven't been on Instagram or Twitter or YouTube or Facebook or whatever it may be. And because of that, we're looking up to the people who are native to those platforms, who are creating TikToks and what was Vine and creating YouTube. And so that is definitely a shift in terms of the people we're looking up to and the people who we want to be like, because now every single kid who is part of this generation wants to be either an entrepreneur or an
0: influencer. Greg DeVincent of Gulfstream, you're hearing all this feedback from young people, one who's fallen in love with the sport and one whom you wish would fall in love with your
1: product, if not the sport in general. What do you make of what you've heard so far? Uh, I, I like what I'm hearing. It affirms that some of the angles and some of the strategies that we, we look to do are are the right things. We've talked about um if not had influencer marketing events here probably not enough of them <laughs> we'll look we'll look into doing more and and having the the right influencers here and you know and creating experiential uh, events and and I, I really think that this kind of affirms that those are some of the right tactics to you know if if not you know get someone into the sport itself get them here and at least exposed to it. We we run horse races during the day for seven hours, six hours, you know, so it's, it's not like a football game or a basketball game where it's between one and four hours. Horse racing kind of is really an all day type event. So just to get people out, you know, from younger to older people to come out, have a beer, Walk around, enjoy just a day out, and and really get to see some horse racing action and get exposure to this sport is a win, in, in my opinion.
0: But Michael Sanduli, here's my question about that. All right, When you finish the racetrack industry program and you become a high-ranking executive of some kind in the sport, which we know you will, what will you do? What can you do about the idea that Gen Zers don't really want to sit through a televised sick and ball game that lasts three hours or so? much less watch or attend in person, a six-hour day of live horse racing. How do you approach that to make the product something they will want to consume?
3: Again, I'm going to piggyback off of what NBC has done and what Goldstream Park has done during their championship meets, where they, you have a face to the event. It's not just TV analysts droning on for hours and hours. You have some sort of performer, or you, you have some sort of live event with fan incentives. So like a like Twitter like get like hashtag Pegasus World Cup and if we select you out of a raffle you get featured or some sort of event that gets more people in. You need the eye candy to draw them in, and then the rest will follow. That's kind of the point I'm getting at is that when you get the when you get the hook in, and you start reeling the fit and you start reeling the fish in, it sets the hook and they bite and you have them for lack of a better
0: term. it's just what my grandfather used to tell me. Hey, uh, Maddie, it seems logical to say that young people, like people of any age, like to connect with each other about things they consider cool, which you've talked about too. Things that give them talking points, connection points. Is there anything you can think of horse racing-related, if not the races themselves, that would make racing a cool topic for people to talk about?
2: Yeah, I mean, we just find youth culture is relevance and coolness. And truthfully, I think that horse racing is lacking both of those things. Really, the only league that I think has done a great job of that is the NBA. And what they've done with, first of all, their players, and they've all sort of, first of all, from a fashion standpoint, they're ingrained into culture. But then also in terms of more from an entertainment perspective, they're talking about the coolest rappers friends with all the artists who who are listening to and so i think that turning the racing people into like influencers makes them relevant in terms of influencers would would be a great approach
0: furthermore the washington post article we've referenced quotes a, an nhl executive is saying humans are greater than highlights would getting workout tips from the ageless champion writer mike smith who's in ridiculous shape resonate? Would knowing what's on Tyler Gaflione's playlist or what he's posting in his Instagram story, like what kinds of things would connect with Gen Zers?
2: I mean, I think that first of all, knowing who those people are is the first step in that, because everyone has heard of LeBron James or Tom Brady, and most people haven't heard of um, some of the jockeys. Or horses. So I think that that's a great first step in getting people to become aware of who these people are and then pushing them as influencers. Like, who are these people really beyond the track? What kinds of stories are behind them? Why did they get into racing? And then all those things become more and more interesting in terms of like, what are they doing? What is their workout routine? All that kind of stuff.
0: Gregory DeVincent, one of the problems with this sport that we've talked about ad nauseum on this program over the years is that it is decentralized. There is no commissioner of racing, though I'd gladly take the job if it was ever created and offered to me. Furthermore, all of the stars of the sport that we've mentioned, trainers and riders and owners to some extent, like in stick and ball sports, are all independent contractors. They don't work for a league how much can you as a marketing executive lean on them to help connect with young people?
1: You're telling me it's uh it, it is difficult. <laughs> uh, when I, when I first came into this role here in this sport, I, I was like, who makes our rules, <laughs> you know? And then, and there was, there was no answer. And luckily, here at the stronic group you know we we own four tracks across the country which is a, a bigger you know about 40% really of of the market in horse racing we are able to set the tone uh, and and create some of that synergy um, amongst the trainers owners jockeys and all the different entities and then luckily you know since we're kind of the spotlight during the championship meet um the winter season Uh, Most of those athletes and trainers and owners are here, so we have access to them and, and we're able to promote some of those stories. And, and, and kind of find those angles, you know. Uh, we're, we're actually working on some fun initiatives right now for TikTok to go back into the barn and, and create some fun video content. So it's while it's not a centralized sport, I think we're luckier than some of the smaller kind of one-off track facilities that may not have, that really may be more on an island than we are.
0: Michael, the Rutgers professor who's quoted in the Washington Post article, we were talking about experiential events and authentic experiences earlier, that Rutgers professor also says that Gen Zers want unique, authentic experiences that they can share on their social networks. Like Maddie said, if someone took away your phone and you couldn't share what you were doing on social media, how would that affect your experience of doing it?
3: To be honest with you, it, w- it wouldn't it would really. Uh, with the experience that I've had and the people who I've worked with over the years, it's really been burned into my head. All the memories I've made, the conversations I've had, everything I've learned. Again, social media to me is what helps spread the word. Like If I didn't have my phone with me while I was learning and work in working alongside some of the best trainers the world has to offer, I would remember it and I would cherish it for the rest of my life. Not to say that I don't now, but... Having the opportunity to spread it to the world is certainly a big factor in drawing people in. Like, oh, he's having fun. Look at this unique experience. This is pretty cool. To me, social media is more of the vehicle to lure people in. Whereas if we didn't have it, it would have to spread by word of mouth, which would take, I think would take a considerable greater amount of time and effort for the word to spread. Like playing a giant game of telephone, for lack of a better
0: word. Maddie, let me put the question to you. If whatever you're doing, even eating breakfast, whatever it is, if you can't post that on your phone, how much does that ruin the experience of doing it?
2: It ruins the experience a lot. I mean, sometimes we're going to restaurant space purely because we want to take a picture of the food or going to events. I think a great example of that is a Starbucks unicorn frappuccino. A few years ago, where everyone went to Starbucks, took a picture of it, tried it, and then threw it away because it tasted horrible. So I think that that is the experience and a big part of what we're looking for in terms of where we're going, what we're
0: consuming, all that kind of stuff. Greg DeVincent, how do you feel about that when you're creating the events? How much does that now factor in, the idea that it's all about what these people are now going to post on social media, that you have to give them something that they can post, that they'll want to post?
1: It's everything. It's really from the backdrop of our facility and how we think about that to branding that we have in strategic locations, uh, because we know that people are going to take Instagram photos uh, at a certain angle. Uh, to, to the experiences we offer, to the way the food is plated and designed. We know that everything is an Instagrammable moment these days and we try to think of every angle from the color scheme of the property and how those colors are represented in photographs. Uh, it's It's everything if i could put a rainbow out in front of the uh the track every day i would <laughs> but that's uh, you know that mother nature has to do that but you know we're we're fortunate that we have the backdrop that we have with kind of the uh, high rise florida condo cityscape really in the in the background overlooking the track so it's it's we're lucky with with what's been built around us but the instagram moments and and the photography and video that's captured is, is really everything. And we try to find the, those young folks that are, that are posting and connect with them and, and, and reshare their content really to, to continue to promote the experience that I think a lot of non-fans out there really don't know what we have to offer in, in, here in the sport and just kind of a day out at a, at a racetrack.
0: It rains every day at 4 o'clock in Florida. You must have plenty of rainbows over Gulfstream Park.
1: <laughs> we have plenty. That's right.
0: Maddie, we talked earlier that betting on horse racing on your phone has been around since even before smartphones were popular. It's interactive, it's digital, it involves data like fantasy sports leagues do. What kind of appeal do you think wagering on racing online has for people in your age range?
2: Right now, I don't think it has any appeal because, I, okay, I take that back. That's not true necessarily, but I think it has very little appeal because no one understands enough about course racing to actually bet on it. So it's more of a fun thing. With that being said, I think if you're going to an event and you're going to be able to watch and you want to put down a dollar or $5 or some small amount, then it becomes more appealing. But also I know that a lot of sports limit limit the amount of betting or limit the betting that is doable in different states
0: michael sanduli what are all your new brainiacs coming out of the racetrack industry program going to do to address what she just said that people don't understand this stuff
3: well it's funny enough that you mentioned that that one of my former colleagues who who's graduated he had mentioned making a horse racing fantasy sport. And I, I had heard brief kind of summations of it that by week you would pick a trainer and you would get some sort of point system off of it. And so again, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to make some sort of fantasy football, but horse racing possible, but you also need to aim it towards like, Oh, this is a lot like fantasy football. It, it's kind of like writing the same book, but for a different main topic and hoping that it will carry over.
2: Yeah, I think that some kind of fantasy approach is definitely the way to do it, right? Because even if you're not necessarily a football fan, you you can play fantasy by just knowing the players, which adds to what I said about why people are more likely to pay attention to the players. Exactly.
3: So that sort of fantasy aspect draws in. For lack of a better term, there's not real stakes to it. It's It's just bragging rights. Bragging rights is really what's at... when you go up against somebody in fantasy football. There's also the championship, of course. But if you bring fantasy sports to horse racing, I think you can draw younger audiences in with the same kind of approach that you have for fantasy football that you win via a point system and you pick a certain trainer or a certain horse or a certain stakes race that you think is going to draw a lot of horses in and you get some sort of points reward system. And I think that could carry over very much into what fantasy football has done and drawn in hundreds of thousands, if not millions or more, into fantasy football without actually knowing the sport. Just like it could work for horse racing.
1: I love it. That's really a great idea and a great angle to bring something that people already know with fantasy sports and then bring it into this particular sport. And kind of on that angle about you know people not knowing how to approach uh, betting on this sport. It's, it's tough buying a race program and trying to analyze and break down uh, the statistics on each uh, combination of a horse and the conditions and the trainer and, and top speed and all this, these, these items and trying to understand who to wager on it's, it's impossible for someone who's new to the sport or someone who's really just being introduced um, and, and, and that's something we've our technology division has, has worked on for you know the better part of a couple years now and it rolled out more broadly in the beginning of the year is, is first bet, which is uh, an app that, you know, it allows for traditional wagering, but it has an algorithm that brings all those stats in and gives you a, win, a percentage of which horse to bet. And I, I, I jump on there all the time without even having done any research at all. And, and I'm able to just take the top two horses that it tells me to pick and bet on them. And uh, most of the time I win, <laughs> you know, so it's, it, it, it's really kind of a cool way to introduce new fans or new bettors in, into betting without having to do all the analysis, which is just completely rigorous.
0: And that, we, I guess you could argue, is what's called content marketing, not selling by saying come out to Gulfstream Park per se, but giving people information in, in an app form that they like in order for that to happen. How much of your ongoing strategy is content marketing, not selling, but you know, even putting short videos on social media?
1: A huge part of it. And, and it's, it's tough. You know, the line's pretty blurred between um, selling and, and, and content marketing, but uh, I would say you know, about 30% content marketing and, and trying to show what's, what's going on through, through influencers, through, through the different experiences and through the races themselves. Uh, our our, our simulcast, I guess, would be a a great example of that. And and we we invest a large amount of time with our our commentators and our team and our race caller just to talk about the sport and really talk in detail about the, uh, in the traditional sense, the horse racing. And I think that's a big piece of while it's not necessarily marketing, it's it's content marketing that, that we're putting out there.
0: And what social media platforms do you use? Because we all know Facebook and Twitter are for old people. Snapchat and Instagram are for young people.
2: TikTok.
1: (laughs) We are still using Facebook and Instagram. I'll I'll say that. TikTok, just getting into TikTok. But, you know, I think those, those videos are a little more for fun.
0: Maddie Bregman, we here at the Worldwide Leader gave up showing the Triple Crown races and the Breeders' Cup back in the early 2000s, and when that happened, I heard through some back channels that the reason our management gave them up is because our salespeople sell to a sports audience, of course. NBC's sales force, from what I've heard, sells their horse racing as lifestyle programming. So you see advertisers that appeal to viewers who tune in for the party – The hats, the fashion, the celebrities. You certainly see the same thing in the U.K. during Royal Ascot, for example. So from that, to what degree is that where all of racing should be headed when trying to connect with Gen Z?
2: All of racing should be getting influencers to go to every single event and post content because people will go to the events if they know their favorite influencer is going to be there purely based on the hope that they want to try to meet them or even get a glimpse of them. So yeah, I think that that's definitely a way to make horse racing more relevant and it's definitely a reason that people are going to games along with the experience as we, as we discussed earlier.
0: Michael Sanduli, there's one other topic that the Washington Post article raises, and that is how Gen Zers connect these days with social causes, which we have clearly seen throughout 2020. Has it come up at all in the racetrack industry program? Should it come up at all, particularly among young people like you, about trying to bring racing people together to support a certain social cause?
3: Under the right premise, like, if if it's for a good cause, Absolutely. When Santa Anita was shutting down and it was affecting people, horsemen came to their defense. Trainers said, "My hot walkers and my grooms, they need a place to work, and I can't pay them if you guys aren't running. So you have to co- So if you can meet us halfway, then we can meet you halfway. Like that. That is something that when you show unity, it shows that not everybody's in it just for themselves. It shows." A, a kind of a moral standing that attracts people to oh this guy's got a good moral code for lack of a better term so when you see somebody kind of go against the grain or against the narrative and point something out that resonates and sets a point you you can kind of visualize it's like oh I've never thought of that before this guy makes a good point he or she makes a really good point point. I think I might follow that kind of ideal for lack of a better term and I think it should be coming up because as we're becoming more aware of what, can, what should be said and what should not be said in the climate that we live in today, we, we need to be aware so that one person doesn't say something that will represent or will inadvertently represent the entire sport and bring the whole sport down because of one person's words.
0: Maddie, how important are things like that to people of your generation?
2: So I think this is actually a big misconception because while it shows up for millennials as they care a lot about social impact and cause and all that kind of stuff, which is true, it shows up the same way for Generation Z. In reality, a lot of us are not willing to pay an extra $5 or whatever it may be because your product or or sport or athlete has a social mission or cause. At the same time, I think that that's one of the reasons the NBA has done a great job of maintaining relevance is their players have aligned with brands and causes that are genuinely important to them, and the league is just backing them. So for the NFL, it feels less authentic because the perception of the NFL is that they're just all about money, and that's the reason they're trying to become more involved with Black Lives Matter and with the elections and getting people to vote. So I think that it depends, but we do care about it from a high level. It just is not maybe as true as a lot of people would would think.
0: All right, this has been great. Let's just do some final thoughts on anything we've discussed. Let's start with Greg.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just on the on the social the social justice piece, I think Maddie definitely hit the nail on the head there. The companies usually stay neutral. Obviously, we want to do the right thing, but the message is most authentic when it comes from the athlete or from the star per se i think the message is most authentic and most uh, listened to when when it comes from that and then we as the company kind of support the right thing in in most cases
3: my final thoughts are again that the sport is trending in the right direction i think we're going in the right direction of getting the right age groups to get into horse racing for longevity yes we still have work to do but i think the foundations are there and to kind of loop back to influencers and so on what racing did oh so long ago could also be pretty helpful here is that way back when in the 50s 60s and 70s we made racing heroes we made nashua a big thing we made swaps a huge horse for the times And we we still do that today. And we do that with relative ease because everybody's enamored by the appearance of a horse. And when that horse is so successful, it, it goes, oh, it's not just a pretty face, it's actually got real talent. We can make equine heroes to kind of fill in the gap, fill in the LeBron James kind of shoes that sometimes horse racing needs. I think we are in the right direction And I think we have all the tools in front of us to make horse racing as good as it has been in a very long time.
0: You get the last word, Maddie. Are these guys full of it, or is there any hope for this business to connect with Gen Z?
2: No, I mean, I... I think there's definitely a lot of ways to do it, whether it's through fantasy or, or betting or something along those lines, whether it's bringing influencers and having them create content either at the events or with jockeys or creating an Instagrammable experience with a particular food item or whatever it may be. I think that as mentioned, everyone likes horses. They're, cool, they're amazing animals. So I think that there definitely is a lot of potential as long as it's done the right way.
0: Well, thank you all so much for being part of this unique discussion. Michael Sanduli, Maddie Bregman, Greg DeVincent. and thank you all so, so much.
1: My thanks pleasure. For awesome. having thank you for having us.
0: Our thanks once again to our roundtable panelists. When the inaugural Saudi Cup race was run in February, most of the world knew little of COVID-19. The issue was the Saudi government admitting to arranging the death of a journalist who dared in print to demean. But nearly one year later, the Saudis have made nice with their enemies. Now, Qatar and Israel have normalized political and business dealings with the Arabian powerhouse, so we're led to think they shouldn't be despised. But leopards do not change their spots, so when I watch the race, I'll do so with misgivings in my heart. I don't care that the Saudi Cup is the richest race in the world. I wouldn't let a horse of mine take part. Although it wasn't the Saudis' fault that Maximum Security, the winner, was a victim of malfeasance. Trainer Jason Service is under indictment for drugging his horses to race. Let's hope next year's running has no such grievous offense. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, the iTunes store, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. You could even leave this show in the stockings of the elves at America's Best Racing. They might think you gave them a lump of coal instead. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.